Well, being half term this week, we've spent part of this week having our granddaughter staying with us. Ellie's six, and uh, she's got an enthusiasm and a zest for life that's absolutely delightful. She, she wants to show us everything, be it her latest drawing, a, another favourite teddy, or you know, a ladybird that she's brought, out, brought in from the garden. Oh, look, Nana, it's a black ladybird with red spots. Mm. <laughs> it's a constant stream of one thing after the other. So it can be almost overwhelming. She's a bit like the Duracell bunny that, you know, she just never stops. But, but in a good way. Uh, now, I, I hesitate to compare the great scholar Paul with a six-year-old child. Um, but Paul has got an almost childlike exuberance in his letter to the Ephesians. He's so caught up with the, the magnificence, the sheer magnitude of God's riches and his grace to us that the first part of his letter, he darts from one subject to the other. He keeps on interrupting himself. Just another example of God's riches to us. And then he goes back to his original thoughts. Now, we've come today to one of my favorite passages in the whole of the Bible, Paul's prayer for the Ephesian, Ephesian Christians in chapter 3 of the letter. And then by implication, it's also his prayer for us too. And he starts, for this reason I'm praying for you. At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul went on a huge digression to help the Ephesians not to be discouraged that he, Paul, was suffering in prison. And to find out why Paul's praying this particular prayer for us, we need to go right back to chapter 2. It's a passage which we've actually not specifically covered in this sermon series. Because in chapter 2, Paul paints an incredible picture of the way that we've been brought back in full relationship with God through Christ's death on the cross. We're no longer strangers, foreigners in our relationship. Paul likens that relationship with God as being like we're a member of his family. And, you know, Paul was writing in a culture where family meant everything. Our world, as we look around, can sometimes feel like a disintegrated chaos. There's conflict and division everywhere between different families, races, nations. Israel, Gaza... Ukraine, Russia, Sudan, Yemen. The heartbreaking list seems endless. Now God's revelation to Paul that he talked about in chapter 2 is that all these discordant elements will one day be brought into one through Jesus Christ as the church brings the message of Christ and the love of God to everyone. And the climax of God's purposes is to eventually bring all things in all creation together in Christ. When, as Paul says, the times have reached fulfillment. I mean, it's mind-bogglingly huge, isn't it? The um, NIV translation actually says to bring the whole universe together in unity in Christ. And I have to admit, when I look around me, I find it quite hard to believe. So, 
perhaps it's not surprising that Paul said that he was kneeling before his heavenly father to pray. Now the normal Jewish attitude of prayer was to stand with hands stretched out and palms upwards like this. But Paul's prayer for the church was so intense that he prostrated himself before God in an almost like an agony of entreaty. I was reminded a bit of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. His prayer was that, that intense because it was so important. Important for our well-being as Christians, yes, but also imperative to fulfill God's ultimate plan of bringing all creation back together in unity in Christ. Because Paul's prayer brings together two great themes, the themes of power and the theme of love. Now, power and love might actually seem like polar opposites. Power, especially the love of power, has all sorts of negative connotations. I mean, we associate it with despotic rulers over the centuries, from you know, some of the cruel rulers of the, the Roman Empire to Hitler and the Nazis, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, just, you know, just to name just a few over the centuries. The love of power can lead to terrible things. Now, Paul's prayer reverses the order. It's all about enabling us to have the power to love. And at its heart, it's all about knowing how deeply we ourselves are loved by God. The power of love. So let's take a closer look at it. Paul's prayer has got three main components. It's a bit like stairs in a staircase, and each one goes a little bit further and a little bit higher. And the first component is that we may access God's strength and power through the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, a couple of things that I think are helpful to notice here. The first one is that it's God's power and strength, not ours. It's not our doing, it's God's grace towards us. We don't have to do anything heroic in order for Christ to dwell in our hearts, or in other words, come into our lives. We simply have to ask and receive. God's power through the Holy Spirit will do the rest. And the other is that there's a bit of a subtlety in the language that Paul uses here. Paul wrote in Greek, the common international language of the time, and there are two Greek words that can be translated by the English word dwell, as in the phrase, Christ may dwell in your hearts. One of them simply means to inhabit the place as a stranger or a lodger, something transitory or impermanent. The other word, and that's the one that Paul uses here, is a word that means to settle down and take up residence. It's a permanence and not a temporary abode. Christ's dwelling in a believer's heart is for life. Paul prays that Christ's ruling presence will be there for us in the center of our lives, in good times and in bad, through joys, through sorrows, in every circumstance of our lives forever.
And the second component of Paul's prayer is perhaps the most well-known one. It's that we might know the sheer magnitude of God's love towards us, the length, the breadth, the height, the depth of his love. It's as if Paul invites us to look around us at the limitless sky, the far horizons, the depths of the sea, and hear God saying, my love is as vast as that. There's no person outside my love, no place that is beyond its reach. It's so immense that you can't fully comprehend it. Now, the translation of this verse in the message version of the Bible is, is even more active. It reads, take in the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breath. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Now, some of you might have noticed that I customarily wear a silver cross around my neck. Here it is. Um, it's a cross which, those of you in the front can see, is slightly crooked. Now, the Christian silversmith friend who, uh, had it met, who made it for me had this verse in, from Ephesians in mind when she crafted it. She knew that it was one of my favorite Bible verses. And the crookedness is deliberate. Um, with a bit of imagination, the crooked cross can represent a figure reaching upwards like that. Um, it reminds me to reach out and grasp just how vast God's love is. But more importantly, the cross shape reminds me of the love of God shown by Jesus on the cross. Because knowing God's love is more than simply an emotional experience, which will almost certainly feel stronger or weaker depending on our life circumstances and mood. We need to look to Christ to see it modelled. God in Christ pushed the boundaries of love to the ultimate when he entered our world as one of us. And the cross is that ultimate symbol of God's love for us. In a sort of topsy-turvy way, Jesus demonstrated the power of love by becoming completely powerless at the end of his life and voluntarily submitting to death on the cross. And that was out of love for us. But the power of love, God's power of love, was fully revealed on that Easter morning when Jesus was raised from the dead. Now Paul uses the phrase that we might be rooted and grounded in love. In the same way that a tree's roots are essential to hold the whole tree firm and steady, no matter how strong the wind. So God's love is essential. It's the only truly solid foundation upon which we can build our lives. The third component of Paul's prayer, and it's the climax really, is quite difficult to comprehend. It's that we might be filled to the measure, in other words, be completely filled, 
of all the fullness of Christ. What, what does it mean? Obviously, as one of God's creatures, we can't achieve the fullness of God in the sense of being equal with God. But I think it, it rather describes the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer for his disciples um, at the end of John's Gospel, towards the end of his life, when he prays to God the Father, I have made you known to them, that's the disciples, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. God indwells believers, and they become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter describes in one of his letters. So the riches of God's character are available to us. God, by his grace, fills us with his Holy Spirit, and that enables us to live more like Christ. And this is where the power of love becomes the power to love. Uh, Reverend Martha Luther, Martin Luther King, the pastor and American civil rights leader, who he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, and he wrote a book called Strength to Love. It was a fusion of his Christian faith and his social activism at a time when the civil rights movement in the USA was often turbulent and violent. And he wrote, Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. His legacy to the power of love and nonviolence still stands in America today. Perhaps we could do well to remember that as we look around us at present-day conflicts. This passage is, is a hinge point in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's a hinge between what God has done for us in the first few chapters and our practical response to him in terms of the details of our behavior as Christians towards one another, which we'll be going on to in the next few weeks. And it takes us back to the fundamental of our faith, God's love for us, so that the motivations for any of our actions are not driven by mere moralism, but they're driven by love. Because it's hard to love. It took Jesus to the cross. Martin Luther King was assassinated. If you're feeling discouraged by this point, take heart from the closing words of Paul in this section. It's a real paean of praise to God, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. In God, love and power come together. When Christ dwells in our hearts, he gives us the power to love in ways that exceed all our expectations or imagining. So 
what might we take away from this morning and this passage? Just a few final thoughts. If we want to know God's love more deeply, we need to look at Christ, to his life and to his death, the way that he modelled God's love for us. And we need to celebrate it. Um, the opening verse of our closing hymn that we'll be singing in a little while sums it up nicely. My song is love unknown, my saviour's love to me. Love to the loveless, shown that they may lovely be. If we find it hard squaring Paul's message of God's love and power when we look around us at the current mess in our world, then I would encourage you to take the long view. Paul wrote about God bringing the whole world together in unity in Christ at a time when he was in prison and Christians were being persecuted. Christianity has survived and flourished against the odds then. And if we look in the right places, we can see God's activity in our world today. We have very short, finite lives. God works to a much longer agenda. And he has a very much bigger perspective. At the um, risk of trivialising all this, there was a lovely line in the film The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel when the hotel owner tells a disgruntled guest, I believe it was Maggie Smith, um, who was complaining about his rundown Indian hotel. We have a saying, everything will be all right in the end. So if it's not yet all right, it is not yet the end. Now, you know, it takes faith and some imagination to take the long view. But as Paul said, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And finally, if we want to work with God to bring in his kingdom on earth, we need to share God's love with others St. Teresa said in the 16th century, Christ has no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Knowing that we are deeply loved by God, believing in the power of love. Let's ask God for his strength to love and be alert to any situation in our lives, large or small, where we ourselves can show his love to others. Amen.